reading is found on page 743 in your Bibles, or it will be on the screen. Will it be on the screen? Perhaps not. (laughs) Isaiah 55, verses 1 to 11. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk, without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread, and your labour on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and you will delight in the riches of fare. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you, my faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a ruler and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations you do not that you do not know will come running to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them, and to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and snow come down from heaven, and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I send it. Is the reading that we had, which was Isaiah 50. Oh, Pete, that is so kind. Thank you so much. This is, um, this is Pete's looking after the preacher. Um, water is important, isn't it? I mean, a glass of water when you're thirsty, uh, get a dry throat. Preacher certainly needs a glass of water. Our passage this morning, uh, you may have noticed it, was also last week, if you were here, is addressed to the thirsty. Did you notice that? And have a sip of water, you see, just to make you jealous. Um, It it is water, I promise you. It's not my pre-lunch gin and tonic. It is water, and uh, jolly nice it is. Water is so important, isn't it? Um, uh, Our brother Rob Wakefield, before Christmas, traveled all the way to East Africa 
to Tanzania, a country I've had privilege of visiting a number of times in order to help with a water project at a time of drought. Well, the lack of water becomes a life-threatening issue. It's reckoned that pure, clean water is the most important single step to contribute to health in rural communities worldwide. So there we are, Pete, thank you very much. I'm going to park back there and uh, maybe sip it as we go along. We, this morning, are then thinking of God's gracious invitation to the thirsty. Come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters. Let's pray. Almighty God, we remember that day when the Lord Jesus invited that woman he'd met at the well to drink of living water. Uh, We thank you that you promise to feed the spiritually hungry and to quench that spiritual thirst. Grant this morning that as we come to your living word, so we may be fed and our thirst quenched, we ask in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you were able to be here last Sunday or if you've uh, picked up online since, you'll know that we were beginning what uh, Dave mentioned this morning, this little series in one chapter of the Old Testament. We're taking it slowly. We're doing it just a little bit at a time over three Sundays. Last week, we did verses one to five, and the title was The Divine Invitation. In our church Bibles, you'll notice that the uh, editors have given it a little title. That wasn't there in uh, what Isaiah wrote, but it says, Invitation to the Thirsty. It is addressed, of course, to Isaiah's world, the 8th century BC. And because it's addressed to a part of the world that was used to a shortage of rain, in other words, it wasn't written for the high peaks of Derbyshire, this would have had a particular impact. Now, drought is not an issue that you and I have to struggle with here. But if you transport yourself in your mind back those centuries and around to that kind of place, you'll realize that this is a powerful analogy that teaches a significant truth. Now, Isaiah is speaking here in what is called prophetic oracle. You and I don't often read prophetic oracle, at least not in the mainstream media. He uses figures of speech, he uses analogies, ways in which you can get a handle on a truth using picture language. It is repetitive. It's not meant to be analysed in the way that you would maybe part of a New Testament letter. 
You're meant to kind of um, absorb it and enjoy it. So, let's absorb and enjoy God's invitation. Come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money will behave as if you do have. Come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Go into the supermarket and help yourself and you don't need to produce the credit card at the till. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labour and what does not satisfy? Words that last week we saw Jesus himself picked up as recorded in John chapter 6 where he speaks of himself as being the bread of life. And we were thinking last week, and I left you with the question, what would it mean then to feed on him, to come to Christ, to quench that thirst, and to be sustained by him? Well, these words were spoken by the prophet Isaiah because he had been commissioned to speak. He'd been appointed by God as a spokesperson. That's what prophet means. It means one who stands in the place of someone else and who speaks on their behalf. In our old Bibles, the prophecies of the Old Testament were often introduced by the prophet with the phrase, thus says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. Chapter 6 of Isaiah, if you're familiar with it, records the time when, as a younger man, Isaiah was commissioned. He had a vision of God in his holiness. Holy, 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 he heard being sung. And he was commissioned to speak. At a time of what was a serious national apostasy in Judah. We are in the southern kingdom. It is the time of the divided kingdom. Isaiah is in Jerusalem. And it was a time when the people who were meant to be God's people had turned their back on him. Would you keep your finger in chapter 55 and come back with me to the very beginning of the book? Now, Isaiah is a long book. We said last week that it was very easy to get lost in it. It's also very easy just to dip in and pick bits out. I'm wanting to help us not only to understand chapter 55 as a whole, but to understand how it works within the big book. So Isaiah begins, and you'll see the little heading there by the uh, editors, by speaking of the rebellion that he saw all around him. A rebellious nation. Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. But what the Lord says is pretty terrible to hear. Listen to what the Lord says. I reared children and brought them up. Now, any parent here knows that that is no breeze. That is a serious undertaking. Those who are uh, still being reared and brought up will discover that one day, perhaps. 
The Lord says, I reared children and brought them up. He's speaking of the gathering and forming of the nation Israel, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. not a compliment is it that comparison woe to the sinful nation a people whose guilt is great a brood of evildoers children given to corruption they have forsaken the Lord they have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him Now, as a result of that, the prophet Isaiah, who in this marvelous book does speak brilliantly of hope and of salvation, has also to speak a message of impending judgment. For 40 years, Isaiah was a preacher, and the first 39 chapters of this book record his word ministry. Exile, that is the taking away from the land of the people, the destruction of the city and of the temple, the taking of the captives into Babylon that happened 200 years afterwards is anticipated by Isaiah in the second half of his books. And so clear is that anticipation that if you were to consult lots of modern commentaries, you would discover that generally Bible scholars think that Isaiah, well, probably couldn't have written the second half. It must have been somebody else writing later because the context of it is the exile. And chapter 40 onwards is addressing the people who have lost everything, their home, their city, their temple, perhaps their hope. And so our chapter 55 is addressing that context in the exile. Now the alternative, of course, is that the Lord God enabled Isaiah to anticipate that and to speak in advance into that situation. And there are good reasons for thinking that actually that is what we have before us, and this whole book is written by the one man, Isaiah, in the 8th century. Isaiah has to speak then of that impending judgment, but he interweaves it with the promise of hope, of restoration, of a new heaven and a new earth, of the coming of a heavenly Jerusalem, a new Jerusalem which... If you were here before Christmas, you may remember the Apostle John picks up at the end of Revelation, the new heaven and the new earth. That is language that he takes from Isaiah. It is there in the last chapters. And Isaiah's great prophecy culminates in a vision at the end of chapter 66 of God's great agenda for mission. A mission agenda that will take 
the good news of salvation to the ends of the earth. And along the way, he pictures an anointed servant. Yes, one who would suffer and die for people's forgiveness, but whose job description was to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That all nations and all families should be blessed. And so it's no surprise that the most quoted Old Testament prophet in the New Testament is Isaiah. Time and again, the gospel writers say, this is that which Isaiah spoke about. And you may have noticed that in our Christmas readings. So that's the background. Come with me then to chapter 55. Now, you've got an outline. Um, I hope that that will be of some help. Um, An opportunity not to be missed is where we begin in verses 6 to 7. Now, what Isaiah says, speaking in to these people is this, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Isaiah has been speaking in the name of the Lord. Come, all who are thirsty, is the Lord's gracious invitation. It is the divine invitation. This, if you like, is um, it's Isaiah's follow-up call. Did you get the invite? Did it arrive in the post? Have you checked your email? Have you got the invite? Have you acted on the, have you replied? Have you responded? Seek the Lord. uh, Look, this is a great opportunity. Seek the Lord while he may be found. It is an opportunity not to be missed. Call on him while he is near. In fact, there are four great imperatives here. You know what an imperative is, don't you? An imperative is something that you and I are meant to do. Let's pick them out. Do you see them? Verse 6. Seek. Verse 6. Call. Verse 7. Forsake. Second half of verse 7. Turn. Four great but simple imperatives. Seek. Look for. Call. Speak up. Respond. Forsake. Leave your wicked ways. Turn. Not just turn over a new leaf, you'll notice, but turn to him, to the Lord. The question is, would they listen? Would they listen when Isaiah preached that in the 8th century? Would they listen now that... They were in exile. Will we listen today? You may remember that the Lord Jesus himself picks up this language in the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember? Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. It is a marvelous opportunity, an opportunity not to be missed. And the New Testament speaks then of this ongoing opportunity. Now, how are we doing? Um, Dave, what time is it? Well, it's uh, just one quarter to 
just quarter to 11, Dave reckons, right. Uh, and of course, he's right in tick-tock time. But if I asked you what time it is in terms of God's great purposes, the New Testament tells us that now is the time of God's favour. Dave, which day is it? Sunday. Very good. Except that's only again in our weekly calendar. The New Testament says today is the day of... Very good. Sorry, we hadn't rehearsed that. (laughs) So the Apostle Paul says, now is the time of God's favour. Today is the day of salvation. It's a good trick question. You can ask, um, all right, you can ask your friends over coffee, what time is it? And if they turn to their watch and say, no, 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 no. What time is it? Which day is it? The answer is it's the time of God's favour and the day of salvation. It is an opportunity then not to be missed. Ha, but how can this be? How can that invitation be issued to these people who have turned their back on God? It's not normal, is it? I mean, that's not normal human behavior to issue an invitation like that to those who have been guilty of severe provocation, of turning their back, of breaking relationships, even of violence and destruction. It's not normal behavior. Well, of course, the Bible knows that. That is why the Old Testament law builds in a provision, doesn't it, for how to respond. It's often known as lex talionis. The idea is, you remember, it's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth in order to restrain retributive justice. In other words, if somebody smashes one of your teeth, you're not allowed to smash their entire mouthful, let alone to cave in their head. It can sound to us a bit crude, the idea of a tooth for a tooth and an eye for an eye. But it was given in order to restrain human revenge. What does God do to those who have turned their back on him? He issues a divine invitation. This is not normal human behavior. It wasn't typical of ancient deities. It wasn't typical of the deities of the Greco-Roman Empire. It isn't typical of human behavior today as we see played out on our television screens. So how can this be? Well, Isaiah gives a marvelous explanation. Verse 8. The Lord is speaking. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. In fact, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so much higher are my ways than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Isaiah's day with no electric lights, the night sky would have been vividly bright. Again, he's using something familiar to people, 
to bring home a profound message. How high is the night sky? How high are the stars? Well, of course, they had no idea in those days, except they could see that they were immeasurably high. Now, this is not a statement of God's unknowability. This is a description of God's exceptional and unique character. The character that he revealed to Moses when he spoke of himself as being gracious and merciful and faithful, that extraordinary description that gets repeated time and again in the Old Testament, six or seven different uh, quotations scattered all the way through because, well, because it's always true. It's not that he was like that to Moses, but he wasn't like it later on. I put the references in the notes. You can chase them up later if you wish. You see, unlike you and me, for whom provocation easily leads to a ferocious response. Here we have the God of all grace, the God of undeserved love, the God who doesn't turn his back on those who turn their back on him, the God who holds out a divine invitation to those who have rebelled against him. The God who takes initiative in mission, even bringing his salvation to the ends of the earth. We call it grace. Some people uh, use the little acronym, don't they? Um, God's riches at Christ's expense. Well, that is what God's undeserved love brings for us grace, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. It's not actually what grace is, it's what grace brings. What grace is, is undeserved love. Here then we have the God of all grace. In his character, very different from ancient deities, very different from the deities of the Greek and Roman Empire, very different from human behavior. Now, I want just to acknowledge that this does raise a whole heap of questions. And in particular, it raises a difficult question about some parts of the Old Testament narrative to do with the conquest of the land and the extermination of those who were resident in it. And the question is whether this God of whom Isaiah speaks can also have been the God who commanded those things. This is a big question. It is a serious ethical and theological question. It has a serious explanation within the scriptures that some may be familiar with. For God's command was to do with judgment on wickedness and evil 
and idolatry alongside his determination that his people be different and to establish his great agenda for mission. Now, I haven't got time to say more about that. You may want to chase up, though, the way Jesus deals with this in the Sermon on the Mount. And remember that the apostles apply that kind of language to the spiritual battle we're in, not a fight against flesh and blood. Well, that was by way of um, uh, a little uh, dis- discussion. Let's, um, let's come back. How can Isaiah know this? How can you and I know it? It's contrary to human behavior. Where did it come from? Well, the answer is it is only possible to know it through the word of the Lord. The word as preached by Isaiah, the word as accessed now in scripture as you have it on your knee, a word that can be preached, a word that has been known down the centuries, a word which is contained in the Bible. It isn't actually the Bible, is it? If it was, then those who were illiterate or those who haven't ever had a Bible like the New Testament church, or all those centuries of Christian history before the printing press wouldn't have known it. No, it's the word of the Lord. Marvelously, we have it in Scripture. We have it in a book on our knee. It's, it's, it's a bit like saying, now here I've got um, a favorite uh, CD. It's about saying, you know, this is Handel's Messiah. I mean, I mean, it is sort of, but it's not really, is it? because I could down this, let, download it now from, uh, from the web, and I don't actually need the bit of metal called the CD. Yes? The, the book you have on your knee is the medium by which you access this marvellous word. But it is the word of God. It is that God has spoken, and it is a means that shouldn't be underestimated. What do we read here about Isaiah's understanding about this means? Have a look at verse 10. We're back in prophetic oracle again. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, picture desolate landscape, first rains of the year, the impact is almost immediate. It is overnight. Suddenly, there are blooms. There are green shoots. That's the picture he uses. So that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word, verse 11, that goes out from my mouth. Again, it is the Lord speaking. A word that won't return to him empty, but will accomplish what he desires and achieve his purpose. Isaiah's understanding of God's word is that it not only informs, that is, it tells us what we otherwise couldn't know, it also performs. It actually does a job. 
It makes a difference. It achieves God's plan and purpose. That has always been the case. If you think back to early Genesis and the first creation account, God speaks and things come into being. So God's word performs. It also informs. It informs Adam and Eve of who they are, of how they should live, of the world in which they find themselves, of right and wrong and so forth. God's word both informs and performs. The Bible, you see, is not merely a record of what God once said. It is also what he now says. And so as God's word is heard, even today, it will accomplish what he plans and purposes. Friends, this is the work of God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit who inspired the prophets, including Isaiah, who led the apostles into all truth, who now opens eyes to see and ears to hear, who teaches and trains believers. All these marvelous things that Jesus promised the disciples the Spirit would do. We don't want to drive a wedge between the work of God the Holy Spirit and the work of God's Word. How then do we know all these things? It is because God has spoken. Isaiah knew that. And so for 40 years, he was God's spokesman, God's promise. And as God's spokesman, even to those who had turned their back on God, he issues this divine invitation in verses 1 to 5. And he follows it up with the exhortation to seek, to call, to forsake, and to turn. He explains that the reason he can do that is because God isn't like us. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. Even for those who've turned their back on him, he doesn't turn his back on them because he is the God of all grace. And in his grace, his word still speaks. And we have it. A word of grace. An invitation to the thirsty. A word that promises salvation. So here's my question this morning. Why do you think God has done this? I mean, what's the point of preserving this invitation for you and me? What's the point of Isaiah's follow-up call in verses 6 and 7? Verse 11 says that God has a plan and a purpose. What is the purpose of this word, do you think? Well, next week we're going to do the last couple of verses and that will help flesh out the answer to that question. Let's pray.